Many of you may be aware that today was the day of the Boston Marathon. And then again, you might have known but forgotten. There's a tendency to drop into kind of a timeless capsule on retreat, where the only reference is really is the date and day on the interview sheets. Every day kind of begins to melt together. Well, one of the staff persons, Matt, Matt who works in the st- in, on staff, um, today ran the marathon. He completed it. And his goal uh, was not just to finish. I think finishing would be quite an admirable goal. Uh, I'm very envious of his uh, youthful exuberance. Um, but he did finish, and he finished under, uh, his goal was to finish under three hours. And, of course, he did. He finished, I think, in two hours and 58 minutes and so many, so many seconds. I don't know. Seems remarkable to me uh, that he could do that. But for many of you, these last two days have been sort of a marathon too. There are so many challenges you know, that we face, uh, in the, especially in the first couple of days. You know, we run into a wall of what is known in the Buddhist world as hindrances, a lot of difficult energies like restlessness and sleepiness and resistance and impatience. We run into all sorts of uh, fantasies and planning mind. We run into also lots of self-doubt can come up in practice. You know, when, when difficult things arise in practice, pretty much you can kind of, if you keep paying attention, you'll see those little thoughts of, I can't do this, this practice is stupid, I'm wasting my time. All those kinds of thoughts, they tend to arise when things aren't going well. And then all of a sudden, when we have that one measly moment of peace and calm, uh, we really convince ourselves that it's definitely worth it. Uh, Then the next sitting, things get agitated again. And so, of course, it takes a lot of patience. And it certainly takes, I think, a lot of patience to run a marathon. I think some of the states of mind, I was thinking about Matt today, and I can imagine there were just so many kind of similar states of mind that you'd run into in doing something as difficult as, as running 26 miles. Just the facing that particular challenge and running into uh, any kind of fear or anxiety, watching your energy levels go up and down, getting racked, I'm sure at times with some doubt. Certainly there must have been some doubt about the time as he was keeping track, I'm sure, and realizing that the finish line was you know, just a little further. But the effort and the patience that we're putting in, that we're developing here, is really worth it. And at the essence of what we're doing, what we're training ourselves in, is we're training ourselves to be awake. Training ourselves to be awake in this lifetime, in this moment. And there are many, many fruits that come along the practice. It's not just pain and it's not just effort, and it's not just difficulties. But when we begin to learn how to live life in the present, we begin to be able to touch what's true in our experience. We begin to taste and touch it for ourselves in a very direct, fundamental way. Because we're looking at our experience in the present. We're learning. Living in the present opens up so many possibilities. So much of our 
potentiality you know, in life is submerged, you know, submerged by the difficulties, submerged by our preoccupation with other things. And many of us don't open up to what is really possible this lifetime. What's poss- what is possible for us as human beings? We also discover through living in the present the ability to be intimate. Larry mentioned intimacy last night. And that's really a lot of what we're doing here, is developing intimacy with ourselves and developing intimacy with others. All of us know what it's like to be in a conversation with somebody and to know that they're distracted, preoccupied, they're not being present. And we know what that does to the quality of the relationship. You know, it creates distance, separation, and really, inevitably, it's unsatisfying. Practice and living in the present is really, a tr- is really one of the most wonderful gifts you can give yourself and others. Because when you can be present, you really can be with others. You can really listen to them, make contact, make a connection. Living in the present allows us to uncover, uncover what's within us. It allows us to uncover innate qualities that are within all of us, whether we meditate or not. You know, we share these universal qualities. Loving kindness, generosity, joy, compassion, inner clarity. Those qualities you won't find outside of yourself. You can't. They're innate qualities that you have already. And when we live in the present, that's what we begin to tap into. You know, when we're somewhere else, we're missing so much, so much of what's possible for us, and we miss these qualities. You know, these qualities, oftentimes when we're not present, really just become ideals, you know, something to strive for. By living in the present, we tap into them in a very natural, effortless way. By living, by living in the present, we also experience life much more directly. It's not mediated by other people's views or opinions. It's not mediated by books or other people's wisdom. But we experience it directly. And in that process of experiencing ourselves, the activities, our minds, our bodies in a very direct way, we begin to overcome separation. We begin to overcome the suffering of separation. Of course, living in the present because we're so conditioned to do everything else but that. It requires effort, but it also requires renunciation. It requires orienting your life, you know, orienting your actions, your deeds, your mind, your heart, in the direction of letting go. Oftentimes people think of renunciation as you know, kind of gulp, Renunciation—it's kind of got a kind of an edge to it. 
I don't see it that way. Renunciation really has nothing to do with kind of depriving yourself of basic needs, whether they're physical needs or emotional needs. Certainly there's a value in simplicity. There's a value in investigating, really investigating this consumer culture that we get caught up in, investigating this whole obsession with accumulation, whether it's accumulation of things, of status, of power, and seeing if we can introduce some simplicity in our life. You know, and this simplicity in life can really help support us settling into the present. One of the favorite sayings that we have at CIMC, we mostly say this amongst ourselves, the teachers anyways, is you can't have everything. You can't have everything. And I think in this culture, a lot of us really are working at getting everything. We want everything. But more important than external renunciation and external simplicity, and I think goes to a much deeper meaning in, in, the, in the notion of renunciation, of letting go, is internal simplicity. And this internal simplicity means letting go of suffering. Letting go of our suffering. That's why, to me, renunciation There's a lot of joy, a lot of freedom in this process of letting go. Because what we're letting go of is the burden that we're carrying. The burdens that we accumulate by not living in the present. By not learning to relax and open to the present moment. We miss so much. We miss so much. Not too surprising the key to this letting go process, this key to the release of tension, suffering, is, of course, mindfulness. It's the key. Mindfulness allows us to come into the present. If we sat around and we thought about the present, we tried to figure it out, tried to analyze it, we tried to get there, we wouldn't get very far. We'd be thinking and thinking and thinking about what we needed to do. And really, all we need to do is something very, very, very simple. In fact, it's one of the most simplest things that we can do. And because it's so simple, we don't remember to do it. And that is simply to pay attention to what your experience is in this present moment. It couldn't be any simpler. You don't have to think about it. You don't even have to be particularly bright uh, or clever um, or articulate. Simply, all you need to do is just know how to pay attention. And of course, the quality of attention is so important. The quality of attention is one of being non-judgmental, of being completely allowing of what's happening in the present. And that's the power of mindfulness is that capacity to accept. It doesn't judge our experience. We do, definitely. We judge experience, but that's our thoughts. That's our conditioned reaction, our conditioned thoughts towards the experience. Mindfulness itself, that power that you have within you, is that capacity to pay attention to your experience without judging it, 
It's not conceptual. Simply seeing in a very, very direct way. Like when you're being mindful of the breath, you're simply being aware of the sensations. You're not creating images. You're not figuring out the breath. You're not developing strategies. You're simply making contact with exactly what's happening. Mindfulness allows us to contact the present. It's the way in. It's really the way towards our, to the source of who we are. But to get or drop into the present does require a letting go. The letting go process obviously is facilitated by mindfulness. But there are many, many, many things that we need to let go of, many sources of our own suffering. And certainly one of the most powerful sources of our discontent, something that letting go of is really a true joy. It's one of the most truest, deepest joys that we can experience on the path, which is this process of letting go of habit. When we can begin to live our life in not a habitual way. Living our lives in habit is such a burden. It really leads to a feeling of separation and disconnection. Larry was talking in some ways about kind of the disconnection uh, when we don't value things, the, the activities that we're doing, you know, whether it's work, whether it's something we might describe as menial. And that separation, it's really that separation that's causing the suffering. It's not the actual work itself. Habit's just like that. Habit really creates separation from what we're doing. In one area of habit uh, that we work with very carefully and, and pretty constantly uh, on retreats, is looking at our activities. You know, our, acti- our activities during our daily life are extremely habitual. You know, we do things in a very automatic way. We're extremely clever. We can function at a very, very high level, and we can be completely not there at the same time. I mean, it's, it's amazing what we're capable of without being present at all, practically. That's, of course, why... I highlighted so strongly the walking meditation, why I I value the walking meditation so much. Because what I see with the walking meditation is that for most of us in our daily life, walking is habitual. We walk in order to get somewhere. And in that process of walking to get somewhere, we're thinking either about where we're going or where we've been. We're doing everything but actually be in the walking experience itself. I live in the city, and I know this for a fact. When people are walking around, very few people are being mindful. And you don't have to move like we're moving to be mindful. You can be mindful and be running. Lots of people do actually practice running meditation. So it doesn't have anything to do with slowness, but it has something to do with being connected to what you're doing. It has something to do with being awake and settling into your experience. And so walking, for me is a real opportunity to take something that we take for granted. 
take walking for granted. We do it very habitually, and we begin to pay attention to it. And in that process of paying attention, now this doesn't happen right away. Sometimes it takes time. But in that process of paying attention to it, we're changing. We're transforming our experience from something that is in some ways dead. You know, if we're not present, we're not really that alive. And when we start paying attention, all of a sudden there's energy in the experience. All of a sudden there's movement and energy. There's something going on there. There's something going on there that's worthwhile. And all we really need to do is to keep paying attention, relaxing and keep paying attention. At CIMC, we have many, it's Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, a place where we teach a lot. We teach a lot of practice groups, and there's quite a few CIMC people here during this retreat. They, they are very familiar with these practice groups, and one of the aspects of the practice group is not just the work that we do when we meet once a week, but it's, it's really uh, learning how to practice in your daily life. It's a big emphasis in bringing the practice into, what, into whatever you're doing whether it's work, relationships, or home life, whatever. And one of the things that we do, that I do a lot, especially with beginners, but I do it in my other practice groups, is that for sometimes one or even two or three weeks, we'll take an experience, something that is very habitual, and we'll practice with it. And we'll take that one experience and try to make sure that we remember to do it once a day. And that experience could be brushing your teeth, taking a shower, washing the dishes, uh, sipping a cup of tea, making breakfast, getting into your car, taking something very simple, and then see what happens when you actually start paying attention to the experience. Instead of being so busy that you have to get through it to get somewhere, simply slow down and just pay attention to what you're doing. And it's quite amazing. I mean, it's not an easy practice. It sounds easy. But it's not that easy. A lot of times people just kind of forget to do it. But those that remember to do it and try to do it and put a little effort out, so often they report that they never noticed what the experience was actually like. You know, they didn't know what it was really like to take a shower. You know, oftentimes you take a shower and you don't even feel the water. You, know, you just kind of get in the shower, you want to get clean so that you can move on to the next thing. And some people would say, you know, I've never felt the wetness of water before, you know, or brushing your teeth. You know, I never tasted my toothpaste. I never felt the, the roughness, the bristles. And so you take something, it seems a little artificial, you know, just be mindful while you're doing this. But all of a sudden it brings life into the experience. There's juice. There's something going on in that particular experience. And all of a sudden something that was dead something that is obviously a significant part of our life, like eating meditation. You know, we eat. Most of us eat at least three times a day, if not more. And, you know, to take your eating meditation at noontime or breakfast, tea, and really just pay attention. You don't have to move, you know, incredibly carefully. Although sometimes that's an interesting thing to do, is just to slow down one bite and watch the whole process. I used to do this when I was studying in the Burmese tradition. We, we would really watched every moment of the experience and every bite that we, we take. At least we would try to, anyway. Uh, but, you know, you'd, you'd watch your intention to move. You could feel the spoon. You could feel the weight of the, the, of the utensil. 
You could smell the food. You could see the food. You could feel your salivation. And this is all before you've even picked up the food. This is all just the very beginning of this one bite. And then there's a gathering of food and there's anticipation of the taste. And then there's lifting of the arm. And then at the same time you're lifting your arm, you're definitely opening your mouth. Uh, So there's a few things going on at the same time. And then there's placing that food in, chewing it, tasting it, really tasting it. You know, you get to really taste your food when you're mindful. Again, it's, it's that aliveness that, that we discover through mindfulness. You taste it, you start chewing it, you can even feel it go down. You know, if you're really quiet, you can actually feel your food going down your body. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing what, what one can notice if one starts paying attention. Especially if you start paying attention like we're doing on retreat, which is, you know, we're really nurturing that continuity of attention, which strengthens mindfulness very quickly. And that allows us to stay with our experience, like that one bite, and really notice a lot of different experiences just in that one bite. In the step, noticing three or four or five or six different sensations while you're walking, even more. So we want to transform habit. We want to sort of get our lives back. We want to get our lives back. And the way we get get our lives back is through this very simple act of paying attention to the present moment. Pretty much everything starts happening when we do that. It happens by itself. All the good stuff that you read about will happen if you just pay attention. Another area that is quite habitual We may not be so aware of this, but pretty much you can't make it through a retreat without noticing this. And that's the habitual nature of thought. A lot of us come into retreats thinking, you know, we're pretty hot shots. Uh, We're clever, we think, we get rewarded, you know, um, we think we're very smart, we think we have lots and lots of very interesting and creative thoughts. Um, And then we start sitting and we begin to see this incredible repetition of the same thoughts over and over and over again. I think I spent one retreat trying to count how many thoughts I had. I think it probably was only like about 200. I mean, it was the same thoughts over and over and over again, the same plans from different angles, the same fantasies, you know, elaborating on the same fantasies, you know, uh, the same kind of analysis or figuring things out, uh, trying to get to the bottom of things, figuring out why I'm in pain or why I'm enjoying it or why I'm feeling peace. Um, you know, all of this is really quite, quite habitual and it's incredibly unproductive. <laughs> and of course, there's nothing wrong with any of these energies. It's really when they become habitual. And there's nothing wrong with planning, like Larry mentioned. You obviously have to function uh, you know, out there. Um, actually, you don't have to do much planning on retreat. It's surprising how much planning we actually do on retreat. Um, but you don't have to really do that much planning. It's pretty much your day's planned for you. And you can get 15 minutes after lunch to strategize where you're going to walk and what you're going to see and what it's going to be like. Uh, but that's pretty much it. Uh, it doesn't stop us from planning, and especially doesn't stop us from planning about what we're going to do after the retreat. Uh, that, that's an ongoing 
activity on retreat. And of course, there's no need to judge it or repress that energy. It's natural. It happens to everybody on retreat at some time or another. Um, but at the same time, what you want to work with is the habitual nature, that kind of the compulsive quality of planning. Because the compulsive quality of planning doesn't serve us well out there either. Doesn't serve us well out there either. You know, sometimes we have to make plans. And when we have wisdom, when we're in the present moment, you know, our plans can be quite clear. They don't always turn out to be what we planned. But we can plan actually much more efficiently, effectively, because we're also in touch with what we want and what we need. And that makes planning a lot easier. When you don't know what you want, don't know what you need, it's kind of hard to plan out things. So it's really kind of the addiction to planning. And so often that compulsion to plan or that compulsion to create fantasy, everybody gets into it a little bit on retreat. Um, It really reflects this movement away from the present moment. It's happening in the present moment, but we get caught up in it because we want to move away from the present. We want to move away from what might actually be happening, which is boredom. Oftentimes, fantasy and boredom go hand in hand. Uh, Same with the planning mind. This isn't enough, uh, so we have to create a plan that's more interesting. It's rare that we ever create a plan that's that's less interesting, actually, (laughs) than what we're doing. I've noticed that with my own plans. They're always better than what's happening now. Uh, Otherwise, it would be kind of a waste of time to plan, right? So, habitual thoughts. It happens all the time. And once again, the way out isn't to repress those thoughts or to judge them. That's only going to make them stronger. It's going to make your work a lot more difficult. But rather, the way to do it is to change your relationship to them. Instead of getting caught up in them, this is where you get into renunciation. You make that choice to be mindful that you're having that experience. You know, you're mindful of the fantasy. You see that it's thoughts. So often, just simply being mindful that you're planning or fantasizing. Maybe some of you have already noticed this. Uh, Sometimes just the act of knowing that fantasy is happening, all of a sudden the interest kind of gets a little bit more boring. And then you can let it go, or it just dissolves on its own. The same with planning. Sometimes if you just wear that planning is happening, you see it as a process, and it just lets go by itself. You You don't have to do anything. You don't have to drive it away. Just simply be aware that it's happening. That renunciation, that willingness to be mindful about those experiences, instead of getting caught up in them because they seem better, that's wisdom, that, that commitment to be mindful. Because what you're really doing by, by, through that commitment is you're making a long-term investment in your happiness. You're making a long-term, a reliable investment in your happiness. Because there's no fantasy that you can get caught up in. There's no plan that you can make that's going to bring you lasting happiness, a lasting peace. There's nothing you can get out there. But what you can find within you is something very different than that. Finally, another very important area, and this is an area that the Buddha spoke a lot about in terms of letting go and how that leads to coming into the present in a more full way. This is really, a, I think, a profound teaching, one that reveals its truths all the time in practice, which is beginning to let go of our conditioned relationship to pain and pleasure. All of us have a very deeply conditioned relationship, a deeply conditioned response to our experience when it's pleasant. And that response isn't to push that pleasant experience away. 
That's not our conditioned response. Our conditioned response is to cling, to hold on, to, to hope that it will last, to try to make it last, or if it goes away, to get it back. And that's a conditioned reaction to pleasant. Our conditioned reaction to pain, of course, is to contract around it, to judge it, to try to avoid it, to be afraid of it, to be angry or impatient about it. And that's, of course, not natural necessarily to pain. One can respond to pain in a very different way than that. But our conditioned reaction to pain is to move away from it. And this inner movement of grasping onto pleasant and pushing away pain, once again, pushes us out of the present moment. We have a pleasant experience. All of a sudden, we reach out from the present and we try to hold on. And that creates tension. The same with pain. We have a painful experience, immediately we push it away. Or we contract around it. Once again, we're out of the present moment. Because of this conditioning towards pleasure and pain, it becomes very, very challenging. In fact, it's impossible, actually, to relax on a really deep level. And I don't mean the relaxation of the feet up on the coffee table and you're watching TV and eating popcorn. Uh, that's a nice form of relaxation. But the relaxation I'm talking about is a deep level of relaxation that comes with equanimity. When we stop reacting so much, either for or against pleasure and pain, we begin to really relax. Because then we can be with our experience as it is. We can open to pleasure we can enjoy pleasure to the fullest and we can allow it to change, allow it to pass away. We realize that our happiness doesn't depend on keeping that pleasant experience. Because if it does, we realize that we're going to suffer. Because that, that pleasant experience, its nature is to change. And when we're living in the present, we begin to taste a happiness that really comes out of just being in the present. It doesn't depend on having a particular experience, like something pleasant. In fact, one can experience very deep, lasting happiness in the middle of a painful experience. If one is relatively equanimous, not relatively, very equanimous with pain, one can experience pain because it is part of life. And you realize its nature is also to change. Sometimes we miss that when we're sitting, and you know, we're sitting with knee pain or back pain or shoulder pain. We don't see the impermanence in it. But then we get up and we start walking around, and, and then we might notice the fact that, that, that it changed. It was impermanent. So when we begin to live in the present, we begin to see the impermanent nature of our experience. You know, because we're not grasping, we're not confused. You know, we're seeing things as they are more and more. So we just settle, come back over and over again to the present, Boredom is happening. This painful sensation is happening. I'm feeling good. This food tastes good. Pleasant experience is happening. But then it passes and changes. And you keep going with the present. You keep noticing, oh, that experience isn't here anymore. And yet I'm here, relatively content. I didn't need to hold on so tight. This conditioning, you know, this way, is extremely strong. I'm not even sure if this story fits into this talk, but I like the story. Um, I haven't told it for a couple of years, so I'm kind of due. Uh, but it does reflect just how deep our conditioning can be. Um, 
in the late 70s and early 80s. I was on staff at IMS. And of course, things were very different then. It wasn't as busy. There weren't as many yogis practicing. And uh, you know, we had a little bit more time off between retreats. And uh, you know, we got to enjoy Barry a little bit more, you know, the country, hanging out, hanging out with each other. In one summer, I was working on staff, and a friend of mine on staff uh, who played tennis uh, brought a couple of tennis rackets with him when he arrived on staff and, and invited me to, to play with him. And I had never played tennis growing up. It really wasn't part of my universe. And so, you know, it sounded like a good thing to do. He found some tennis courts across town, in the country setting, really nice. And uh, so invited me one day in the middle, I think it was like July, in the middle of the summer, and so we started playing at the end of the day when it cooled down a little bit. And we really, really had a ball. I mean, it was just tremendous fun. It was such a change because I was working in the office, you know, kind of sitting around looking important, but getting kind of stiff and that kind of thing. And tennis was really a nice alternative. It was a nice thing to do. And so we started playing, and we really both got into it. We really started having really a great time, just really enjoying ourselves, relaxing, a lot of joy, a lot of joking, a lot of playing. Uh, felt good on the, for the body. Everything, it was going quite well. And, and we would come, uh, come home, which was this place, believe it or not, and uh, we would come home and, and we would start talking about it and people would uh, start hear our enthusiasm. Before you know it, some other people started taking up tennis. And before you know it, there was maybe six or seven people um, you know, here and across the street, there was a family living and he was he started playing tennis with us, and we started going out. And then, you know, I noticed that the color of the game started to change a little bit. It started getting just a little bit more serious. And we started competing a little bit more as time was going on. And then before you knew it, somebody, I know it wasn't me, I hope it wasn't me, <laughs> had this very bright idea that we were going to have a tournament. And there was going to be this, you know, match tournament where finally the one person left standing would be the winner. There were prizes. I think, you know, we, we came up with some really clever prize at the end uh, for the winner. And then, you know, we started playing and it started getting kind of serious. And people started like smashing the ball, and, you know, and people grunting out there and really working hard. And, and people started teasing each other if they lost or won or whatever, you know. And, and there started to be like this little bit of an edge to the game. And not surprisingly, after the tournament was over, and the winner was bestowed his trophy, whatever it was, um, we gradually, the interest in the tennis petered out. And before you knew it, by the fall, nobody was playing tennis again. Nobody was playing tennis. Because what we did was we, we killed it, basically. <laughs> you know? Essentially. You know, we, we really killed something that was very joyful and playful, and we created a monster out of it. <laughs> and of course, we're all meditators at the same time, mind you, very committed practitioners. And so in that experience, you know, and nobody, nobody had the bright insight to see that's what we were doing, was killing it. You know, nobody, absolutely nobody saw that we were destroying it, and we were losing the joy, we were really losing the, the purpose, uh, the freedom. So later, it wasn't until really quite a while later, I reflected on that and realized just how strong conditioning is. 
You, know, you get plugged into these situations and your conditioning really can take over. And once again, you know, the problem with that is that you know, it leads to suffering. It takes the joy out of life. Um, in that particular case, obviously, we did lose the joy. And we forgot about the present. We forgot about connection. Instead, we got into our, you know, our conditioning around winning and achieving, which really was a waste of time when you think about it. <laughs> I mean, a total waste of time. I, I don't even remember who won. I'm glad I don't. <laughs> okay. So the Buddha saw the intention of practice was the shifting or changing or transforming ourselves from a place where we would rely on things that didn't bring happiness. We would rely on conditioned happiness. And moving from that point very gradually to a place where your happiness is unconditioned where it doesn't depend on conditions coming together. And when we begin to live in the present, we really begin to taste that and see that for ourselves. That we begin to taste this inner contentment, this confidence, this joy, this energy, no matter what the situation is. No matter what the situation, even if it's a family visit. (laughs) It's possible to practice even in that situation. And that, of course, was the Buddha's, you know, I mean, I think that was his big message and his big gift to us, is that not only did he see that conditioned happiness was really suffering, because inevitably any kind of conditioned happiness is not reliable, it's going to change. And in the pursuit of the conditioned happiness, we miss the present moment, and we miss these innate qualities that are within us that are going to bring us much more reliable form of happiness, much more reliable form of peace. And so it was important to clear up that confusion. And that's what he basically dedicated his life to doing, helping others do that. Finally, one of the great joys and this becomes, to, this becomes clearer more and more as my, my own practice unfolds through the years, is that the more we practice, the more we begin to see that we're nature. You, me, everybody here, we're all nature. We're all part of this nature. When I go for a walk, less and less is Michael Liebenson Grady walking down the driveway looking at things, figuring things out, trying to fix something, not trying to fix something. But there's simply more of a relaxation into the present. And in that process, you discover that you're part of nature. You know, when you live in the present, you're in touch with your body, and you see that the body is changing. In this process, we're not separate from nature. We're not separate from outside. You know, we're part of life. We're part, part of Barry. We're part of this countryside. And that that kind of overcoming, that false sense of separation, is really joyful. 
It's very freeing. It's very light. And we can taste that joy. We can taste that freedom. We can overcome that separation in any activity that we do. Many, many experiences, countless experiences. You can believe them or not. It doesn't really matter. But people awakening in a very profound, deep way in the middle of the most, you know, what we call menial or mundane things. And it's because of the quality of attention. And ultimately, that's what's going to make us happy, is the quality of attention as we move through life. So, of course, that's what we're working so hard at. Okay. So let's take a moment or two of silence. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.